Welcome to Challenge. I'm glad you're here. Tonight, as Devin was saying, we're launching a new series on faith, hope, and love. I think it's a very needed series in the time we're in right now. So we're going to be looking at that. I'm going to be starting us off by talking about faith. You know, years ago, I had a friend, and his name was Wayne. And Wayne would, um, Wayne had an idea about faith that was fairly interesting. Like, he would come along sometimes, and if he saw someone that was sick, he would say, um, you know what their problem is? They just don't have enough faith. And, and I, I kind of looked at that, and I thought, hmm, really? And uh, we had talks about that. He was unmoved. He, he felt like that was exactly right. And if anyone was sick or there was something wrong with them and they didn't get well, it was simply because they didn't have enough faith. And a very strange thing happened. Wayne got sick, and Wayne died. And it began to be some new thoughts around some folks that knew him as far as like, um, hmm, how, how does that work? I think what he was talking about is one of the strange ideas people have about faith sometimes. A lot of times people have this idea about faith that what it is is actually a way for you to leverage what you want from God. Like, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. If I believe enough, then God has to do it. Or if I choose to believe on something, then God is obligated in order to do this. And so we get some really strange ideas about faith. And so if we were starting a logical place, we'd start in Hebrews 11.1, 1, where the author talks about the definition of faith. But actually, the story for that, the backstory starts a little bit before that. It starts in Hebrews chapter 10. And towards the end of the chapter, in about verses 35, 36, the author tells the Hebrews, you know, they, they have begun to grow weary. They have, uh, it's been a while that uh, they've been walking with God. They've had to endure a lot of uh, persecution. They've had to endure from some suffering. And he tells them, he says, you know, you need to learn to endure much more. And secondly, he tells him, he says, do not lose confidence that you have that has great reward. And we'll come back to both of those. But in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the author of Hebrews tells us this. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, when you hope for something, you have kind of an expectation that that's how it's going to be, but you do not have anything definite. There's no guarantees. For instance, like, you know, well, I hope the weather is nice this weekend. Uh, I hope all of you do well on tests that you have coming up. I hope that uh, Melinda has something prepared for dinner. You know, those are all hopes and nothing wrong with those. There's just, there's not a sense of guarantee with those. But he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Another word that is translated in uh, some in some translations is it's the con- it's the uh, confidence of things hoped for. So how do you move from hope that doesn't really have any guarantees to assurance to confidence? How do you move from expectation? To assurance. How do you do that? Well, the answer is really simple. 
the answer is really um, what's said about it. Let me give you an example. If I say to Jeremy, I say, hey, Jeremy, um, my throat's kind of dry right now. Would, would you uh, grab me a cup of water? And he says, sure. I say, thanks. Now, I don't have the water right here in front of me, but I have total faith that I'm going to have the water in front of me. Why? Because he's said something about it. He has said, yes, I will do that. There is assurance when there is a promise. When you know that what you have hoped for has been spoken to and someone said, yeah, I'm going to do that. Then you can have assurance. Faith is the assurance that what God has said, he will do. In fact, faith is the assurance that God's words, his promises are trustworthy and you can act upon them. But you may think, well, what if a person is not trustworthy? Well, that's a great question. That's, that's a great question. See, it doesn't matter if you have a small amount of faith or a large amount of faith to start off with. What really matters is the object of your faith. My brother lives uh, in Port Huron, Michigan. In fact, his house backs right up to Lake Huron. And during the winters, it gets bitterly cold there. In fact, it gets so cold that people will drive out onto the lake and go ice fishing. They'll drive out onto there and, and do some crazy things because the ice is like two feet thick out there. It gets that cold. Now, let me ask you a question. If I walk out on to that ice behind my brother's house when it's wintertime, when it's like two feet thick, but I walk out there and I really don't have much faith, will I go crashing through the ice? No. Well, what if I walk out there when it's moving towards spring and the ice is really much thinner, but I have great faith? What will happen? I will be wet. That's what will happen. See, it is not the amount of faith you have. It's the object of your faith. What is it you're really trusting in? You know, thick ice and little faith, much better than thin ice and much faith. It's the object of your faith. That's what you have to look at. So, when you understand that, that automatically straightens out a couple of misperceptions that people have about faith a lot of times. First misperception is we cannot faith God into anything. Sometimes we have the idea that if we decide something, you know, that he's obligated. If we ask about it or we pray, or we say, I have faith about this, that somehow that obligates God. No, he's the one who decides what he says yes to and what he says no to. To believe God for something he hasn't promised is presumption. To not believe him for something he has promised is sin. So we want to make sure that we exercise faith. Secondly, the thing it tells us about faith is faith is to be acted upon. We'll come back to that one a little bit later. But now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance that what God has said, he will do. What God has said, he will do. We don't believe that 
what God has said he will do because of faith. It's not like, you know, well, I just have faith. I just, just have faith. No, we believe it because of evidence. We believe it because of his character. We believe it because of his track record over and over and over again. In fact, the, the second part of that verse right there, he says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Actually, that word translated conviction can also be translated evidence. It's the evidence of things not seen. And so as you read chapter 11, one of the things you see is exhibit after exhibit after exhibit of the evidence of the character and the promises of God that what he says he will do. And he gives us that through showing us a variety of people. And so a lot of times this has been called faith's hall of fame or God's heroes of the faith. And when we look at this, there's the life there of many different people and things they went through. And what God does is he helps us to see what faith is really like and what it looks like as it's practiced. So I want us to look at two of those people. We could look at a bunch. He names about 16 people and he references tens of thousands of more. But what I want us to do is just look at a couple of those tonight. The first one is Abraham. Abraham is one of those people that he obeyed when God called him. In fact, it says this in Hebrews 11, uh, 8 and 9. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Well, what was the promise? Well, the promise you see, if you go over to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, the promise was this. God said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, when you look at that, that was the promise God made him. Did, did it happen? Well, let's think about that. For those that don't know about that, when God made this promise to Abraham, he was about 75 years old. And he said, and he had no children. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, 75 is not usually the time you start looking for houses across from elementary schools or anything. I mean, you know, 75, you're thinking, eh, no. But that's what God says to him. And God comes back. 24 years later, God comes back to him and says, hey, I don't want you wondering. I'm still going to fulfill that promise. And Abraham finds out when he is 100 that his wife Sarah is expecting. And sure enough, they end up having a child. And that child has a child. And then that child has a child, and Abraham's grandson and about 70 of his descendants, you know, uh, enter into Egypt a little bit later on. And we'll talk about that. But when you look at that right there, his first thing was, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Well, this, these 70 people that entered Egypt, they come out sometime later just north of 2 million people. So you look and you think, okay. Did God do what he said he was going to do? Nation? Yes. Check. God did that. 
And then he says to him, I will bless you. Well, you start thinking, all right, if you don't have any kids till you're 100, what are the odds that you're actually going to be a nation? What are the odds you're actually going to, boom, you know what? It happened. So blessing, yeah, God blesses him. In fact, if you look throughout Abraham's life, it's a very interesting life. You ought to study some time. But you see how God protected him and God blessed him again and again and again and again as Abraham continued on uh, following God and really and really trusting him. So you see that. Then he says, I will make your name great. Did God make Abraham's name great? Today, when you look at all the monotheistic religions in the world, that of Judaism, that of you know, Christianity, that of Islam, all three of those trace their lineage back to Abraham. Now, Christians and Jews would trace theirs back to Abraham and Isaac. Um, uh, Muslims would trace theirs back to Abraham and Ishmael but they traced them back to Abraham. Was his name great? Yeah. But God not only had a promise for Abraham, he also had a commission for him as well. He said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Well, how did that go? Well, the entire book of Hebrews is a book that is designed to show that Jesus from the line of Abraham is God's greatest blessing to all of mankind. And so he came through on that as well. The other illustration is one that you wouldn't normally see. In fact, I'm sure that when God told uh, the people to begin to record things, like the author of Hebrews, um, this may not have been one of the names that was right on the lips of the scribe that was writing this, you know, because um, the person is Rahab. In fact, she's affectionately known as Rahab the harlot. So in Hebrews 11.31, it says this, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Tucked away there in verse 31 is a rather unlikely candidate for God's Hall of Fame, for the heroes of the faith. In fact, what you see is about 600 years after the time of Abraham, Joshua has sent out two spies to go into the land of Jericho and search it out as the children of Israel leaving Egypt have, you know, been in the wilderness for all this time. And now they're getting ready to go into the land and possess the land. And as they do, they send these two spies in. Well, these two spies go in and they hide in the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they're staying there, and some of the people in the city see them going in. So they alert some city officials and tell them, and they come to Rahab, and they say, hey, we understand there's some men that came in that are not from here, and we want you to bring them out. And she says, well, um, they already left, and they already went another way. And what had actually happened, she had hidden them up on the roof of the house, and she'd hidden them away. And so she gives the guys some directions about where they went, and they take off after them. And then she goes up to them, and she relays to them why she hid them and what's going on. So if you look in Joshua 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this, Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Wow. That sounds an awful lot like assurance, doesn't it? I mean, she is very sure of this. Now, how? Well, when you look, she goes on in verses 10 and 11. She says this, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and how you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For your God, he is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, most of us pass right over that, and we don't think much about it as we're reading there in Joshua. But let me ask you a question. How long had it been since God had parted the Red Seas at this point? Forty years. That's right. Forty years. Now, Rahab was not a later-life prostitute. You know, she, she was younger. So she probably wasn't even alive at the time that God did this. And when you look at this, one of the things you see is that she had heard about God. How had she heard about it? I mean, they didn't have papers. They didn't have, you know, news channels. How, how did she hear? Probably some passing camel caravan some 40 years earlier had brought news about this God of the Hebrews and how he had parted the seas and allowed them to come through on dry land. And then he had taken and swallowed up the Egyptians in that and how he had made this promise to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And he was going to give them the land that he had promised them in Canaan. And she knew about those things. She had She'd heard about those things. And on the basis of information over 40 years old, she risked everything. See, Rahab realizes something about faith that we often miss, and that is that faith involves more than trust. It really involves action. You need to be ready to take action on things. Later on, if you read the life of Rahab, you know, it's really interesting. She loses the moniker, Rahab the harlot. She actually becomes the wife of one of the soldiers there within the Hebrew army, a guy named Boaz. And two generations later, she becomes the grandmother of the greatest king in the history of Israel, King David. So you'll notice as you read through Hebrews 11, there's a lot of verbs. Like with Abraham, you know, Abraham obeyed, Abraham stayed, Rahab welcomed. You know, faith is something to be acted upon. Faith is something you don't just trust, but you actually act upon it. Well, the author goes on to tell us how to continue to grow in our faith and how, if we're going to walk with God long term, how do you do that? And he picks up on that. He says this in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, he says with this great cloud of witnesses, meaning the people that he's just referenced in chapter 11, he says, let's do three things. He says, to start off with now, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and what he's saying is these are people, he's not talking about so much these are people that are looking at us, although I'm sure there's an element of that to that, but he's saying we have these people as examples. In fact, if we'll listen to them, they're whispering to us how to run the race. As they are witnesses to us, we hear them say things, by faith, I finished. You can too. By faith, I finished. You can too. And so we've got this great cloud of witnesses. And he says, as a result of this cloud of witnesses, as all of these examples that we have, let's do three things. And the first thing he says is, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. See, what Hebrews 12.1 really is, it's like the warning gun that you have in a race. When you ever see like a, a long race and, and people will be running and all of a sudden they come to the last few laps and they'll hear a gun go off a lot of times. And what they're saying is, okay, you've got to kick it in now. Now is the time. The race is almost over. And that's what the author of Hebrews is, is talking about here in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, we need to see life as a race, and we need to run with endurance and with energy and with discipline. When he says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily besets you, what he's saying is, get serious about the race. If there are things that are holding you up, whether they're sinful or whether they're not, if they're things that are holding you up from doing your best to know God and love him and walk with him, set those things aside. Let go of them. Step away from that. And then he says, you know, these, these Hebrew Christians, they had gotten tired. I mean, they were, they were kind of weary at this point. And what he's saying is, you need endurance, and faith can give that to you. You need to really practice that. So the first thing he says, you know, let us lay aside the uh, things that inhibit us, let's lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. And then the second thing he says to this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. God has a course, a long course. It's not like one of those racetracks around in, in the stadium. It's like a course, it's like a cross-country course. God has a course that he has laid out for you. Now, it may look a little bit different than you had envisioned, but God has a course laid out for you. He had one laid out for Abraham. He had one laid out for Moses. He had one laid out for Rahab. And he has one laid out for you. He has one laid out for me. It's going to take endurance for us to run that course, partly because we're going to be tempted to look at other people's courses. And we're going to kind of think, I like their course better than I like my course. But God didn't call us to run their course. He called us to run our course. And that's what we need to do. So when will you need faith along the way on this? Well, you'll need faith uh, to come to Christ. 
You'll need faith as you face choices, both ethical choices and relational choices. You'll need faith when you face trouble. You'll need faith when you face the future. You'll need faith just for endurance. So you're going to need faith all along the way as you are running the race that God has set for you. Let me give you a word of advice that I heard from a guy a long time ago that I think is utterly helpful. He said, you need to approach where you are right now like it is the last place you're ever going to be. Because only then will you develop the kind of relationships and establish the kind of disciplines and exercise the kind of determination and live the kind of life that will enable you to be the man or woman that God really intends for you to be. See, many people go through thinking, well, you know what? I'm just kind of passing through here. I'm only going to be here for a couple of years, but out there, then I'm going to really do something or one of these days, but not right now. But you know, you have no guarantee about anything in the future. So you need to approach wherever you are right now. Like, this is the last stop for me. And therefore, you need to really give it your best. You really need to give it your all. And then lastly, the last thing he says is this. He says, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I don't know if you guys remember, but do you remember when you first started learning to ride a bicycle? What would happen if you looked down at the ground? And you'd crash all over the place when you start running into mailboxes or running into ditches or, you know, just falling all over the place. What did you have to do? You had to focus out there in front of you. You had to get a car or something like that that you were driving towards, and you had to focus out there. And then all of a sudden, you could stay up. You, you didn't have trouble with that because you were looking out there. You know what? Your focus as you're trying to walk with God and your focus as you're trying to live a life of faith needs to be out there. It needs to be on Jesus. Your focus makes all the difference in the world. So we look to Jesus for three reasons. We look to him because of who he was, because of what he did, and because of why he did it. And that's all right there in the passage. So we look to him because of who he was. Who was he? He says he was the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, the author is the guy that kind of... uh, has control of the story. He starts it, he completes it. And it says that's who Jesus is. He's the author and he's the perfecter of faith. He's also the one who is fully God and fully man. In John 1.14, it says, you know, we beheld his glory and he came and pitched his tent among us. He came and became a man. He took on flesh. So you look at him right there and you're like, wow, he is 100% God and 100% man. In fact, in Colossians 2.9, he says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Right there in Jesus. So, Fully God, fully man, author and perfecter, that's who he is. 
He's the one who shows us exactly what God's like. In fact, if you look in John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, what's a function of a word? I mean, like, if I say pen, you think of something like that. You don't think of a chair. You know, if I say, you know, um, picture, you know, you might think of something like that. You know, you don't think of, uh, you don't think of something else. Why? Because a word gives us a mental image of what something's like. What John is telling us is when you see the word, when you see Jesus, you now have a mental picture of what God is like. You want to know what God would do in this situation? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God would respond? Look at Jesus. So he gave us a picture of God. He shows us, too, how we can live. If God were to take on flesh and dwell amongst us, how would he live if he were us? Well, you see that in the life of Jesus. So you see, well, we need to learn from him, and we need to obey him. So we look to Jesus because of who he is. We look to him because of what he did. What did he do? Well, the passage says he endured the cross, despising the shame. He chose to lay down his life in our place for us and then rose from the dead three days later that we could have life and that we could have a relationship with the God of the universe. And then it says, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. What that means is he's through. He's finished his work. He finished his course. He sat down at the right hand. That means it's, it's a time of rest. He's, he's through there with that part of what he was doing. And so we look to him because of who he is. We look to him because of what he did. And we look to him because of why he did it. He says in the next part right there, for the joy set before him. Well, what was the joy set before him? Well, part of it was John 14, 31. He talked about it was obeying the father and showing the father to everybody by how he obeyed. Him. But the other part of the joy set before him was fellowship with you and I. It so meant such to Jesus that he would be able to have fellowship with us, totally taken care of, not, not having to go through rituals or sacrifices or anything. He sacrificed himself once for all. And now we have access to him and we have access to that relationship. In fact, Paul says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I think many people have been disappointed by faith sometimes. I think sometimes it's a misunderstanding of faith. They thought faith was something you just muster up and you've got to have a lot of it. And if you do, then you can leverage God. But it's not. It's simply trusting what God has said to be true. Sometimes it's in the wrong object. Sometimes we've placed our faith in people. Sometimes we've placed our faith in some candidates. Sometimes we've placed our faith somewhere. But you know what? Faith, you've got to look at the object of your faith. Faith is in God alone. And then sometimes it's because we just didn't know what God had said. 
we didn't know what was promised. We didn't know what God had said in his word. And so we didn't, didn't have a, a good time of faith. If you will take and begin to look at what God has said and then live your life trusting that and live your life banked upon that, you can begin to experience a life of faith. Corey Tim Boone said this, and I'll leave you with this. As you grow in your faith, she said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. As you get to know God and as you really walk with him, may you really experience a life of faith. Thanks.